I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, and verses 1 and 2. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashen hands, they found fault. Now, the Lord has come up to Capernaum from Jerusalem. And uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, there seems to be an, an official delegation, has come to look, to find fault, to be critical, perhaps to gather evidence against him. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, noting their Jerusalem origin. And they saw some of the disciples, as we read, eat bread without having washed their hands in the manner that was customary for the Jews. Well, normally, before eating and even during eating, someone would take a jug and each person who was going to participate would take their hands, first of all with the fingers pointed down and then with the fingers pointed up and pour water over the hands and then rub the hands ceremonially. And that was done not in accordance with the law of Moses. There's no washing of hands in the law of Moses except for the priests who were about to handle holy utensils in the temple. They washed hands as part of the ceremonial to indicate the purity and significance of what they were to do. But the people normally did not ceremonially nearly wash their hands before food. This has nothing to do with hygiene. The idea of all the hand washing was so that you didn't pick up ceremonial contamination. Why, you may have been wandering about in the marketplace, and who knows, you may have accidentally just rubbed against or touched a Gentile. And so you felt that the uncleanness of the Gentile had been transmitted to you. And without a ceremonial hand wash, you would be ceremonially unclean. And this is how they had come to think in absurd ways and preposterous ways. A lot of these detailed customs were quite late. They started to come in after the captivity in Babylon, after the 70 years captivity in Babylon. There were the remnants of Jews returned to Jerusalem and Judah. And from that time on, they began to pick up all kinds of additional customs. Of course, their leaders, the rabbis and the priests, they felt that these explained 
and carried out the requirements of the law. But they were not, didn't. They were human inventions, all kinds of things. And you read here about the cleansing of pots and of cups and of uh, brass vessels and even of couches and things of that kind. A great complexity of extra ceremonial was added by human invention. And the Pharisees were very concerned about this. How can Jesus of Nazareth possibly be a prophet or, in spite of his miracles, we believe he does these things, this is how they explained away the miracles, by the power of the devil. And they slandered him and spoke against him. But how can he possibly be an authentic prophet or Messiah, as some claim, from God, if his disciples do not keep the rules of the elders, the traditional additions, extra-biblical ceremonies that have been acquired in more recent centuries? These things were more important to them than the law of Moses. So there's an examination here. And the early verses explain what is going on. And then, down in verse 8, then the five rather, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen, unwashed, hands, the tradition of the elders. The remarkable thing was that uh, at this time, these traditions weren't even written down. They hadn't even taken the form of a, a written code. It wasn't for another 200 years that they would be adequately written down and made presentable. They were only oral traditions And they were not in the scriptures, not in the books of Moses. But nevertheless, they asked this demandingly, perhaps even contemptuously, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And the answer that Christ gives in verse 6, well hath Isaiah, this is Isaiah 29, prophesied of you hypocrites, Well, Isaiah was speaking about the Jews of his day. But the Lord tells us, as if we didn't know, that uh, what applied to the Jews of Isaiah's day applies even to the Jews of our Lord's time. Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. And the Lord is going to draw a great distinction between claims and acts. Verse 7, Howbeit in vain do they worship me. Their worship is futile. It is empty, is the Hebrew word, translated vain here, futile, we would say today. Their worship is pointless. It is not worship, it is not valid, it is not authentic, because their teaching for doctrines binding on God's people 
things that are just the commandments of men, extra-biblical additions. And then the Lord comes to detail in verse 8, we'll apply this in a moment, for laying aside the commandments of God, Moses alone, the law alone, the ceremonies that God gave to the Jews in ancient times. Ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots, cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, full well, that's interesting, full well. Uh, what that means literally is how marvelously, how brilliantly, we might say today, ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And he's going to give an example. He said unto them, how brilliant you are. Full well, our translators have put it. The well is literal. Uh, you, you do well. But of course it's sarcastic. Ye reject the commandments of God, Moses, that ye may keep your own additional traditions. And here's the example. Their care of parents. Then we'll come to the application. For Moses said, verse 10, Honour thy father and thy mother, which includes look after them when they are aged. And whosoever curseth father or mother finds a way of rejecting them rather than supporting them, let him die the death. That also Moses said. In other words, they're worthy of judgment and condemnation. But verse 11, ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, this is the clever way, how brilliantly you get out of obeying the scripture, Christ says to them. It is korban, which is a Hebrew word, which means see it as a gift, rate it as a gift. And what has happened is the people who should be looking after their aged parents have at some stage shouted at them. This is what they did. They would shout this word out. This property or this extra house that I've got or this farm or this field or this small holding, it is a gift for the Lord. And so having said that, that releases you from obligation of ever setting it aside for the care of your parents. You can forget them because when you feel like it, perhaps at your own death, then you'll bequeath it to the temple. At least that's what you said you would do. But simply to make that declaration in the presence of the parents, all this is a gift to God is your way of saying to them, you are going to get no care from me. Well, that's terrible. So they've invented a tradition which really means they no longer need to obey the law of Moses. And Christ condemns them for that. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, 
don't think that this is for you. He shall be free. That's in italics. Our translators have inserted those words so that you get the sense. He shall be free from the law of Moses. How brilliantly you get out of following the scripture. Now for some words of application. What does this have to do for us today? Well, you know, I have heard preached years ago, then I've read it again and again, and even more recently, I heard of somebody taking this line of interpretation of this passage. It's preached this way. This is appalling. It's complete ignorance of the scripture. It's almost willful misinterpretation. But it runs like this. What this passage means is this, that Christ condemned them for the scribes and the Pharisees for making more laws than the scripture made. This is how they choose to look at it. The scripture gives you the Ten Commandments and then the scribes and the Pharisees or the traditional rabbis down the last few centuries before Christ, added a whole heap of extra regulations. And what Christ is doing is saying, how dare you today be like the Jewish church of old and make more regulations than Christ made? Now you see where this is going. The preacher then takes this and he says, so therefore... These people who say, oh, in the Christian life, you mustn't do this, and you mustn't do that, and you mustn't do something else, and this is what we should do, and this is how we should walk, don't listen to them. They're adding to what God says. Just keep the Ten Commandments, keep the basic laws that you find in the Scripture, and you can... Drink and dance and smoke and watch every soap you like and every dubious and even uh, unclean film you like. You can be as worldly as you like. You can dress how you like, behave how you like, do as you like. And if the preacher starts saying, no, a Christian should behave like such and such, should abstain from this and this in obedience to the scripture and seek to follow this and this objective. Oh, they're like the scribes and the Pharisees. They're adding to the Bible. They're adding to the scripture. And they twist this passage to say something like that to people. And you hear this a lot. You hear this great antagonism among Christians sometimes to, uh, oh, we've got liberty today. Rules and regulations in the Christian life, rules to follow. No, we've got liberty. And this passage will be pressed into service. Well, the passage isn't saying anything like that. In fact, it's saying the opposite. If you read the whole passage, and we will in just a moment, but what this is saying is this. Don't be snared into what the Jews were snared by, and that is 
this idea of ceremonial righteousness. The important thing is to be ceremonially clean. In other words, if you're living in Jerusalem, to go to the temple, to go through all the ancient uh, types and shadows of worship, And sacrifices, well, they were valid in their day because they were teaching symbols of how there would be a great sacrifice one day by Messiah, by Christ, when he came into the world. But no, said the scribes and the Pharisees, the fact you observed these things to the letter means that you are ceremonially clean and fit before God. Now take the Apostle Paul. He was an example of this. He was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, and he believed in ceremonial cleanness. He didn't worry too much about moral cleanness. There was a time when he didn't worry about his pride. He didn't worry about his covetousness and his vain ambitions and selfish desires to be someone big in the Jewish church to be a leading persecutor and cleanser of Israel, to be famous and well-known. He didn't mind about pride and ambition and all that type of thing. It was being ceremonially clean that was important, carrying out to the letter the ceremonial. And that's what Jews started to think about chiefly. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 7, and I can turn you over to it just for a moment. And in verse from verse 9, listen to these words. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. They're actually not difficult words to understand. He goes into more detail later on. And he talks particularly about the commandment not to covet. When he first, the Spirit of God applied that commandment to his heart, he realized the sin that was in him. The commandment spoke to him and it slew him. He said, I'm unclean, truly, before God. This isn't about ceremonial cleanliness. cleanliness. This is about moral cleanliness. And I'm a sinner. I'm covetous. I shall die. I'm under condemnation. The commandment spoke to him, convicted him, and slew him. But he saw his desperate condition before God. He'd never seen it before. He'd never grasped his moral condition. So busy with this mysterious, mythical, ceremonial righteousness. And he says the same in Philippians chapter 3 from verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. These are the things that made me ceremonially clean. Circumcised the eighth day. I must be ceremonially clean of the stock of Israel. I'm an Israelite. 
of the tribe of Benjamin, the most privileged tribe, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, so careful about the observances of every detail of the ceremonial. And verse 7, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. I came to the point I realized those were all teaching symbols. They did not actually affect in me real righteousness at all. So he saw the difference between so-called ceremonial righteousness and moral purity, real righteousness. And that's what this passage in Mark 7 is about. The Lord is distinguishing between the two. So I come down to Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. This is so important that the Lord now calls all the crowd to him. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. He didn't say that kind of thing very often. This is so important to Jews. Verse 15, there is nothing from without a man, foodstuffs, things you eat, that entering into him can defile him. Ceremonially. But the things which come out of a man, your words and your actions, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples didn't understand. Jewish people at that time were so brainwashed into this notion of ceremonial righteousness So the disciples asked him privately when they were back in the house at Capernaum. And verse 18, he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it doesn't enter into the heart. And he repeats, verse 20, that which cometh out of the man, words and behavior. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed. And then there comes the most dreadful list. What a list! Verse 21, verse 22. Verse 23, broadly, very roughly, following the second table of the law, the Ten Commandments. Commandments 5 to 10, the last six commandments. Not in precisely that order, but in roughly that order. This list is more extensive than the Ten Commandments, But everything in it can be traced to those last six commandments. But what a list. Matthew Henry, the commentator, long ago 
made a very shrewd observation. The list begins with evil thinking and the list ends with unthinking, translated foolishness. Evil thinking to unthinking, evil thinking. Schemes in the mind, evil which is planned or relished in the mind. And it ends with unthoughtfulness about God or the soul or eternity, which is translated, and quite fairly, foolishness. Things which are completely unspiritual unrelated to God. What a list. Everything on this list is ugly, treacherous, destructive, self-serving. Everything on this list is willful. Sin, temptation. It's not like a spot that arises on your hand or arm or face because some tiny insect has bitten you. You've been stung. So you've got a little area of inflammation. Something has been done to you. It's not like that. This is you, me, This is in us. It's of us. It's sin. Everyone is willful. Every temptation is consented to. Willful sin. Every one of them is repeated, not inflicted, from within us. You consider the human heart the Saviour's view of the human heart. Think of the coronavirus. They're telling us it may have come from a laboratory or it may have come from a wet market. But originally, they say, perhaps, perhaps, it started in the deep recesses of a cave infested by hundreds of thousands of bats And there's a lady, a Chinese lady, a great scientist, who has spent her life going into such caves. And she's described the stench of a cave infested by hundreds of thousands of vaps. And you stare into the inky blackness, knowing that it's thickly lined with several feet bat droppings from decades of infestation. You look at the human heart when you look at this list and you think perhaps that illustrates it. The innermost view of the human heart with all its sin has been described in terms of a wasp's nest The wasp can be dangerous to many people. 
buzzing about, but the nest is a cauldron of activity. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. You young person? Still in teens? Early twenties? Let the Saviour give you a glimpse of your heart. Maybe you never thought of it like this. You've got so many sins in there waiting for expression. Many of them have never been fully expressed yet. You're looking forward to life, adult life, career. I'm going to do well, you hope. I'm going to get a good job and earn good money, make a good marriage, have a happy life. You've no idea what sins you're going to commit. What's coming up from within, from that infestation which is within how much we all need the saviour as early as possible in life we need to be renewed we need to be so changed that sin doesn't have to have the dominion over us and its power is broken look at the list Dear friends, evil thinking, adulteries, fornications, sins of uncleanness, sexual sins, murders. And you know how Moses defined murders, not only the literal taking of life, but in the murder family of sins, in the book of Exodus, following the giving of the Ten Commandments, slavery is defined. Kidnap and taking someone into slavery is clearly defined as coming under the murder sins because you've taken not just life, but liberty. To take away somebody's happiness and make their life miserable as a bad husband or a bad wife or a cruel parent is actually under the family of murder sins in the Bible. The murder of the body perhaps is the worst of all, but it's in the same family. Murders, hatred, it's in the murder family of sins. It's in your heart. You're infested with it. Perhaps it's just emerged, if you're young, so far as dislike, resentment, bitterness against somebody. It's the murder sin in the heart. It'll be expressed countless times, lifelong, but for the Savior and conversion. Thefts of all kinds. Covetousness, greed, wanting more, wanting to be special. Covetousness applies not only to possessions and substantial things, but uh, how people view you alongside pride. I want notice and fame. 
I covet authority, all this type of thing, covetousness, wickedness, wicked schemes, malice, the moderns translate it, and that's good. Deceit, lies, how many lies are there? How many forms does the lie take? Have you made an excuse this week? That's a lie. Have you exaggerated something? That's a lie. The lie takes so many forms. Have you lightly promised something you never intended to carry out? It's a lie to mislead. Deceit, lasciviousness, which probably means, from the Greek word, more lawlessness. It would include lasciviousness, but lawlessness. An evil eye, envy, blasphemy, in the old-fashioned sense of the word, slander, abuse, gossip. Do we gossip? Have you told somebody something about someone which spoils their reputation and you had no business telling that? It's what is translated here as blasphemy, slander, pride, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. They're within you. They're sinful. As you think of them and like them, take, for instance, this whole issue of the same-sex attraction. There are people saying nowadays, and it's quite wrong to say this, oh, it isn't a sin while it's only a temptation. It's only if it leads to an unclean act that it becomes a sin. But the thought is not sinful. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. The thought is sinful too. And the thought needs to be repented of and cleansed out and the mind diverted from it. All these things defile the person. And they're within. And that's why we need conversion to Christ. Reformation of that bat's cave, that wasp's nest, is impossible. Only the new birth, only conversion, only renewal can take in hand sin from within so that sin shall not have dominion over you. Then you think of Calvary. Here is Christ. This is his view of the human heart. This is what he's come to deal with. He's going to go to Calvary's cross and he's going to bear the filth 
and the infestation and the pollution and the contamination and the consequences of all these sins in so far that they have been committed by those who will be forgiven and saved. He is going to take all of that and bear its punishment on Calvary's cross on our behalf. He is going to cry out to his Father, Punish me instead of them. And the Father will, as the poet put it, it's speculation, veil his face and pour out upon the Son the terrible eternal weight of punishment for all that sin. And the Saviour could see it so clearly and he could see what he'd come to do and the pain he would have to bear in his holy soul. Dear friends, when you see the Saviour's view of the human heart, you're all the more astonished and amazed that he would do such a thing for such people as we are. The love of Christ and his goodness in his atoning sacrificial death. These are the sins we're fighting against. And we can, by the grace of God, with the new heart that Christ has given. That's sufficient for us for the moment.